Happy Father's Day to all y'all. Well, to fathers, I, I suppose. Hey, we're super glad you're here today at First Christian Church. Um, big thanks to the band and the AV crew. Um, our worship leader, Chris, is on vacation for the week, um, so they filled in admirably, so thanks to them for their work today. <clears throat> Who needs to pay a worship minister, right? I mean... Can we cut that out of the video? (laughs) It'll be just our little funny secret. Stick to the script, Scott. Okay. We're glad you're here. If you need a Bible or um, study questions or a program for today, those are coming down the aisles from guest services, folks there who can hook you up if you need um, a Bible. You're going to want to want one today. You're going to want to want one. You'll want to have one in front of you because we're going to be in quite a few verses in Ruth 1. We're going to do Ruth 1, uh, verses 1 through 10 and 14 through 18. Uh, A lot to get to today in the text, so I'm going to want to dive in quickly. Um, In just a moment here, we're going to read together Ruth 1, 1 through 10, 14 through 18. Uh, But I want to hurry up and dive in quickly because uh, I know that y'all, like I am, that y'all are agog with excitement about the World Cup. So let's get through this. So you can go home and, and watch what you're DVRing right now. Actually, no, Mexico and Germany is about an hour and a half. So, And then Brazil and Switzerland. Like five of us are excited. <laughs> uh. Ruth 1, 1 through 10 and 14 through 18. They say this. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Melon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. Jump down to verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. 
May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Father, in the quiet of this moment, as we approach you and your word, having sung of your praises together, we recenter our hearts and minds around the truth that you alone are God, that you alone are holy, that you alone are perfect beyond description. And so as we approach your holy word, we remind ourselves through your spirit that you have created and you have made us not for our own purposes, but for yours. Forgive us for living as if as if the self-sufficiency we have learned helps us understand how you've made us and why you've made us. Free us from shackles that keep us inhibited from your mission. Remove the scales from our eyes so that we would see how you're working in the world and people all around us so that we would enter into your mission and be a going people. Lord, give us the courage to risk in ways that move the mission forward because we return your faithfulness with our own faithfulness to you, asking that you will make up for our lack and use it to do amazing things, Lord. Teach us today from your word, from the witness of those who have gone before, uh, from the courage and the strength and the faith uh, of this young woman who said yes to being uh, a follower. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, there was a sociological study done of um, 95 plus year olds. Um, a sociological study done of people over the age of 95, and they were asked what they would do differently if they had it all to do over again. A whole bunch of 95-plus-year-olds asked, what would you do differently if you had it to do all over again? They gathered all these many responses, and they began to put them in categories. And the three main answers they found were this. Number one, they would reflect more. Number two, They would do more things that live on after they die. And third, you guessed it, they would risk more. (laughs) This is what we're talking about this whole series this summer. As we're looking at the lives of people in Scripture, those who have gone before, and we're looking at what they did in courage that God met with that courage to do amazing things beyond what they imagined. And we're going to see the story of that with Ruth today. Now think about those people who answered that survey, those 95-plus-year-olds, about what they said about risking more. Think about this for a second. These are people who have lived longer than most of us by far. The wisdom of those who have lived much more life than most of us is to risk more. So the question we're asking ourselves is, what keeps us from risking? What keeps us from moving forward in courage and faith? What keeps us 
in this series, what keeps us from risking for the forward mission of the, the movement of God in the world? What keeps us from risking for the sake of the forward movement of his mission? I think I personally struggle with this, uh, the, the, the sake, struggle with risking for the sake of the forward mission of the movement of God, because I feel like, not that I think this, but I feel this, <laughs> I feel like it's easier and it feels safer to stay put. I know that's true for all y'all, because you're human beings. And the stuff of life up to this point that's hard, that's painful, becomes for us an inner apologetic to refuse the mission of God and to stay very well put. Thank you. Which is to say that fear is what keeps us from moving forward. The problem, I think, is that we don't actually believe that God's going to take care of us if we sacrifice. We've had to learn how to do lives ourselves from the pain of before, so no, thank you very much, God. We don't believe God will take care of us if we sacrifice. Friends, it is exactly that kind of sacrifice <laughs> that is the lesson that teaches us most tangibly how God takes care of us. It is only when you begin to learn to move forward in faith and courage and what feels like risk that you begin to learn the lesson most tangibly of how it is that God takes care of us. Because at that point, it's not just you. It's not these ways you've learned to keep yourself in supposed safety. The story of Ruth in the Bible is the story of a woman who learned that it is in leaving comfort that God's provision is most evident. We think the opposite. This is the story of a woman who learned that leaving comfort is when God's provision is most evident. Most of us don't believe this, but I think it's true. When we leave our comfort is when we learn God's provision. Oh, did you think following Jesus to a cross where he dies and asks you to do the same was going to be something different? When we leave our comfort, that's when we learn God's provision. If you want to know God, if you want to know how he provides for you, <laughs> then you've got to stop relying on easy and well-worn patterns of your self-sufficient provision that you've established for yourself. You've got to learn to live like Ruth. You've got to learn, if you want to know God's provision in an intimate way that doesn't depend on you, you've got to learn to go like Ruth. Jump in at verse 1 of Ruth 1, where we are given some context here in the first verse, first verse to, uh, to Ruth's journey. It says this, verse 1, Ruth 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, which tells us right off the bat that we've got two big problems. First, this was in the days when the judges ruled, which is shorthand for things were not good. 
Now, the, these judges at this point in Israel's history uh, were like military, local military heroes, local military heroes. So there was no larger centralized government, no political system, and there was actually no spiritual leader in place. So what had been one single uh, nation of Israel had become warring factions, and they were experiencing within uh, these warring factions and at the local level widespread chaos and violence. In fact, in the very last verse of the preceding book of Judges, it says this in Judges 21, 25. You might be able to just jump right back there. It says this. In those days, this is a summary statement of all that's been going on before the book of Ruth. In those days, there was no king in Israel. No one's in charge. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This statement, this summary at the end of the book of Judges is a sad statement of the entire situation because it encapsulates the chaos of that that time. In those days, there was no king in Israel. It says everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So there's no central spiritual leader of the people. And it had turned into a time of total chaos and violence, civil war, infighting among these factions, murder, sexual perversity, uh, adultery, rape, mass abduction was happening from the people of God within themselves and other nations. It was a total mess. On top of that, verse 1 tells us, second thing of importance to notice here, is that there was a famine in the land. People were dying for lack of food which in the ancient Near East was a real common danger for them. It was a consistent danger. So verse 1 starts on a pretty sad note because not only was there spiritual, political upheaval, there was no centralized system of government. People were also dying for lack of food. So when it says in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes, And the judges ruled, and there was a famine in the land. You get the sense that this was altogether a terrible time. This was about the worst. This was rock bottom for the Israelites. And so it was a time where there was no hope. Things were bad for the people of God, and they clearly needed help. So it it is into the middle of that context of verse 1. Keep reading verses 1 and 2. That a man of Bethlehem in Judah, an Israelite man, went to sojourn, meaning temporarily live, in the country of Moab, which was foreign and enemy territory. He and his wife and two sons. So this dude takes his entire family from Israel, from this homeland, to Moab, enemy territory, to find food and to find peace. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, uh, foreign enemy territory, and they remained there. So there's the background. There's the context. The story begins to pick up. The action rises a little bit here. Look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, who, notice this, verse 4, they took Moabite wives, meaning they married foreign, non-Israelite women, which was uh, frowned upon, to say the least. So they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there in Moab about ten years, and both those sons of Naomi, Malon and Kilion, the husbands of Orpah and Ruth, died. So that 
Naomi, the woman, was left without her two sons and her husband. So the three women are left. So, so think about the context here. They leave their homeland, what, they known, what they've known, what they're used to, the ways they know to survive there, their own homeland, which is their inheritance on which they were depending for their livelihood. They, they leave that to escape the chaos and the famine in order to find peace and to find food. And they're there for about 10 years, but then Naomi's husband and then the two sons die, which means that Naomi was now a childless widow, which means there is no one left to care for her and for her two daughters-in-law. In that day, an Israelite woman with no husband and no sons meant no financial support and also no, no bearing children, which meant not only no community around to care for her in practical terms, but it also meant this sense of feeling left out of the plan and the promises of God. Which is to say that things for Naomi had gone from bad in Bethlehem to better in Moab for a time to now worse than they ever were before. Welcome to Moab, Naomi. Not only had this family been driven away from their homeland, which was their livelihood, but their family now faced extinction because Naomi and her daughters-in-law could no longer produce children. For ancient Israel, who had been told from day one that their worth and their value and their existence were about being blessed by God to bless others, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to, to produce offspring who would carry on the work and the plan of God. There is no worse fate than having one's seed cut off and one's name forgotten and being wiped off from the face of the earth. This was worse than starving back in Bethlehem. This fate for them was actually rock bottom. This was rock bottom for them. Now, I've had a front row seat in the lives of many in ministry for almost 25 years now. And here's one thing I've learned about rock bottom. Rock bottom is when God does his best work. Because rock bottom is when you're finally ready to listen. When you realize that your human resources are at their limit for the thousandth time. And when you realize that you have no hope other than the supernatural and the providential hand of God, that is when you're actually ready to hear from him and to follow his lead. You can't hear from God until you stop talking, until you stop acting as if you know better than he does. And it was during Naomi's rock bottom that she began to hear from God. It is in this moment from verses 5 to 6 that the transition from rock bottom to hearing God begins in the text. Keep reading there. There's some cool stuff to show you here. It says this, verse 6. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. Circle that word return there. It's important. We'll come back to it. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab 
that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So word is there's food back in Bethlehem. Now this word return is a key word here. And in the Hebrew text, this word return shows up 12 times in chapter 1, beginning here in verse 6. Which is interesting since there are only two places in the entire four chapters of Ruth that explicitly mention God's activity. And this is that first of those two times where the word return and explicitly mentioning God's activity happen here in verse 6. These ideas of returning and God visiting his people to provide for them are tied together here and begin to be expressed in verse 6. This refrain, this consistent repetition in the text of returning here in verse 6 is sort of pictured in the text as God's voice leading Ruth back home to peace and real forever safety. It's like this quiet undercurrent of God saying in the text, Return, and I will take care of you. Return, and I will take care of you. Return to the land. Return to me, and I will take care of you. So Naomi does that. Verse 7. She set out from the place where she was, for in Moab, with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah, her homeland. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, verse 8, this is as they were going on the way, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's concerned that they find a place of safety and peace and rest in their homeland. She says, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. In other words, maybe God will provide for you husbands so that you can carry on this mission. She kissed them. They lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, this is both of them speaking here, both Orpah and Ruth, to Naomi, No, we will return with you to your people. Well, as it turned out, (laughs) here in verse 10, what they said didn't end up happening. Only one did, in fact, return. Skip down to verse 14. It says, They lifted up their voices and wept again. Uh, There was some discussion here between 10 and 14, a lot of crying and hugging and discussion about who was going where. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, which in the text is, is saying this was sort of a good, goodbye kiss here. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, despite having promised in verse 10 to return. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but it says Ruth clung to her. Which is not just a statement about <laughs> holding to her. It's a statement about her loyalties. Notice what Naomi says in verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. She's going back to her previous life of worshiping the gods of Moab. So return after your sister-in-law. It's going to be easier for you to stay in your homeland like your sister Orpah. So Naomi keeps protesting here. But look at Ruth said. She's facing a momentous decision here. And she said this. This is a statement of her real loyalties. Ruth said, verse 16, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then she said this. Listen to these beautiful words of her commitment and her courage. Ruth speaking to Naomi. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death parts me from you. (laughs) Ruth was here drawing a line 
in the sand, making a declaration of her faith in God. And Naomi saw, verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. In the text here, Naomi had tried to convince Ruth and Orpah that this going back to Bethlehem thing would be too hard a journey for them. Four times. And Ruth insisted. She was determined to go. Now Ruth was facing a a momentous decision here. And it's the same question we face when we decide to make the God of Naomi our God. Would she choose the established and the familiar and the comfortable patterns where she knew how to navigate life? Or would she choose this new and unfamiliar way of life, casting her lot with Naomi and with Naomi's kinfolk and with Naomi's God and with his promises of provision? Verse 18 here makes Ruth's resolve clear. It says she was determined to go. There was no turning back, and the decision was final. Friends, when we leave Moab for Israel, we leave the well-worn ruts of our lives we have mistaken for the horizon to go on a journey of faith that requires courage. And when we do that, God is faithful to meet our courage with his promises and his provision, to do amazing things beyond our small vision for ourselves. You see our lives, each one of us, as we follow God to return to Israel. is a part of a larger tapestry of faith that God is weaving over many thousands of years to do amazing things beyond what we could possibly know. Which is to say your faithfulness today is a part of what God's doing with the faith of his followers to move his mission forward. When we, when we have the courage to, to do what feels like risk, God is faithful to meet our courage with his power to do amazing things. Whether it's Naomi bound for Moab in the first place or, or Ruth bound for Bethlehem, when we go through life with the courage to follow God into foreign territory, God uses our courage to move his mission forward. You see, Ruth's story is much bigger than she could have imagined. Ruth's story is the story of how God used her courage to deliver his people because eventually, from Ruth's ancestors, Jesus was born. Ruth went to Bethlehem, married a man named Boaz, bore a son, and at the end of the story of Ruth here, in Ruth 4, in the very last sentence, in Ruth 4.17, it says, They named him Obed. You may have no clue who Obed is. That's okay. The next sentence makes that clear. Obed's the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. Which is to say, a king would be restored in Israel, from whom would come the king, capital K, who would restore lost sinners like you and me, to a forever relationship with God. Ruth had no earthly idea how going, returning to Israel 
faithfully with courage would be used by God to do something (laughs) way beyond what she could have imagined. God used her faithfulness, her courage to keep the royal line of David intact so his plan of sending a Messiah to save his people from their sins would continue. Which is to say that Ruth was a going follower of God. She was not a sit, hunker down, settle, and stay follower. She could have stayed like Orpah in her homeland of Moab, but the text said she was determined to go. Just like Abraham in Genesis 12, who followed God's command to a land that God would show him once he got there, (laughs) Ruth didn't know Boaz was awaiting her. She didn't know her own son would father Jesse, who would father David, who would someday father Jesus. Ruth was determined to go without knowing everything about the future. This is how we operate right here, folks. I'm not going anywhere until you tell me all 10 steps and steps 15 through 20, even though we're really only going to 10. You feel me? This whole series is about how we are a going people. And Ruth was a going follower of God. Later on, in Matthew 28, at the end of Jesus' ministry on earth, just before Jesus ascended into heaven to return to the Father, he gave his disciples instructions for how to carry on the work after he left. And this is what he said in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. This is called the Great Commission. And I'll show you a cool thing about it. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now notice this. This is called the Great Commission. And there's a a real important feature grammatically that I want you to know about here. Uh, The main uh, imperative, it's called the main command, the the do this part, is um, that phrase, make disciples in verse 19 that's the main command in those two verses here and there are three what are called participles that describe what's involved in make disciples Uh, participles kind of a verbal noun usually ends in ing hope that helps the three participles are go baptizing and teaching and those three verbal nouns, those, those participles, modify the command, make disciples. Now, here's the important part. If it's not nerdy enough yet, buckle up. Go is actually a participle, meaning it could have that ing on the end, as in going. But <laughs> it's a past participle with ongoing results. Let me say that again. It's a past participle with ongoing results. Meaning it's like saying, having already gone, keep going. Having already gone, keep going. Meaning here's Jesus about to leave earth and he's telling his followers, here's how you carry on the work that I've been doing, that I've already gone And I want you to, already having been gone, keep going to do. And he says, having already gone, having already followed me, 
keep going and keep following me by making disciples who are baptized and taught to observe what I've commanded you. This is why in this series we are saying week after week that we are Christians who are a going people. You can search the scriptures in vain to find a definition of a follower of Jesus who is not having already gone, keep going. You will search the scriptures in vain for the definition of someone who has faith that is assured of steps 10 to 15, even though we're only going to 10. Let alone 9, 8, 7, 6. From the beginning of the scriptures, it's go to a land I will show you when you get there. Which requires faith to do what feels like risk. God has never called us uh, to a safe mission that requires no risk. Following Jesus was never about a safe mission that requires no risk. It's an often scary and sacrificial mission that requires us to risk more than we feel is wise or safe. By default, it will almost always feel slightly unwise and a little bit unsafe if you are a going follower of Jesus. The truth is that most of us are determined to stay, unlike Ruth, who is determined to go. The irony is that when we pursue a mission of stay, as opposed to be going for the mission of the gospel, when we determine to stay, we lose the adventure of experiencing the provision of God because we mostly lean into the provision of self-sufficiency. So for us today, hear a lesson, hear a word from a young woman (laughs) thousands of years ago who had the courage to go. And answer the question, what is God calling me to risk for the sake of his mission? What is God asking me to to part with, to sacrifice, to give up, so so that I can learn what faith really feels like? For so many of us, faith stays right up here as an intellectual exercise, which keeps us from experiencing going that is actually his provision. When a, courage, when, when, a, when a community of people like this comes together with the courage of Ruth, God does amazing things with their combined efforts. Dead people are raised to life. Hard hearts become soft. People sacrifice in ways that are models for others around them so that they can see what it's like to walk by faith and to have the courage to risk. Let's pray, friends. Lord, continue to teach us. That you were a God who gave up far more than we could ever imagine in sending your son Jesus. Because it is from your perfection and riches and holiness in glory 
that you sent Jesus to our mess. Thank you, Lord, for your perfect faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, for despite our rebellion against your mission, showing yourself to us in Jesus and for the examples of those who have gone before like Ruth. Lord, make of us a going people. so that we would see you um, and that you would make yourself known to us and that the dead would come to life and that your spirit would bring dry bones um, to new life. Father, give us the courage to risk for the sake of the mission. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.